0: All right, let's talk about Lamed tonight. Let's talk about these eight uh, verses, all beginning with the Hebrew letter, basically the letter L. Um, the structure of this section is actually quite simple, and so I, right, right away I just want to show you what the structure is and how we're going to outline the talk, and then I'll, I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, but notice in verse 89, what word does it begin with? Forever. Uh, four verses down, remember there are eight verses in each Section four verses down so halfway through in verse 93. What word does it begin with? Well in English it does But it's important. This is what I want why I wanted to point this out Uh, I don't think they could have translated it this way because it would have sound sounded funky in English But that verse also begins with the word forever So what you have in this uh, this part of the psalm is two parts two sections Which is why we're gonna have two points tonight the first section speaks to the forever character of God, which is the basis of our assurance. And the second section speaks to the forever commitment of the person that is trusting in the forever God, which speaks to how assurance ought to affect us. That's where we're going to go, okay? Wanted to get that out of the cat out of the bag to begin with. Let me ask you this question, though. Is confidence a good thing? Good. Okay. Can it be a bad thing? What's an example of bad confidence? confidence of the wrong thing. Could be because it's in the wrong thing. Confidence in a tennis swing, and then you miss. Sure. It sounds like that's happened to you before. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> has that been recent, Ben? That you whiffed on the ball, or yeah? High oh, high school. Okay. Yeah. Championship game. Yeah. Sore subject. Yeah. <laughs> Misplaced confidence, it might be that you have overconfidence in something and then you realize, wow, I shouldn't have had as much confidence as I had. That could be disappointing. We lost. You lost, okay. Was it your fault? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, confidence can be good or bad, right? Now, give me an example of when confidence is good. In fact, even necessary. Sure, right? Yeah, it's, like Jesus said it's better to be rock than sand. Which, remember he's speaking metaphorically. He was talking about what your life is based on. So when it comes to faith, it's much better to be assured than not assured. At least if you're assured in the right thing. What's another example of good, good confidence, Clint? Bridge, really, really kind of right, yes. So the more... Uh, The more of your life, I think what you're saying is the more of your life you're putting into something or entrusting to it, that's the degree to which you want to be confident. The more of your life you're putting in, the more confident it's important to be. Well, think about that uh, that topic because I, I think sometimes we miss this about the Bible, that God wants his people to be confident. Uh, Maybe a more theological way to put it. God wants his people to have a deep and abiding assurance of the things about him that are unshakable. And and that the reason is he wants that assurance to shape the way his people live. If you're not sure of something, you're going to live one way. If you're sure of it, you're going to live a completely different way that makes sense? David understood this. This is what this whole section about Lamed is. That's why in verse 89 he begins with a very big, bold, expansive word, forever. Forever, God, forever your word. And that's why he also goes into verse 93 and begins it forever. Forever I will not forget your word. Forever your word stands and forever I will not forget. I am living my life confidently and assuredly because I know that the one I have confidence and assurance is, is unshakable. So let's talk about that tonight. Uh, Just to give you an example of where the Bible speaks about this, I'll just give you one example. I think there, there are many, but let me give you one. John, when he writes his gospel in the New Testament, says at the end, I wrote the, he gives you a reason why he wrote it. He says, "I wrote this so that you may believe, and that be- by believing in Christ you may have life in His name." And then, when John gets to his first letter, First John, he does the same thing. John is this kind of writer who likes to tell you exactly why he's writing, and so he says in First John, "I've written this letter so that you may believe and have life and know." that you have life so you put all that together and what do you have from god remember god is speaking through john god is saying children of mine whom i love whom i sent my son for i want you to to be saved and i also want you to know that you are saved i, I want you to experience life from me but i also want you to be Confident and certain that you've experienced life for me, and I'm going to continue to be who I am and treat you in the same way that I've always treated you I I want you to know that you know Where you stand with me Now let's listen to Dave and let him speak for the rest of the time. We'll just uh, Listen in to what he has to say The first part is about the grounds of his assurance which also can be the grounds of our assurance as Christians Verses 89 through 92. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth. By your appointment they stand, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in the way. Did you notice something as I read it again? I tried to stress the words that I was wanting you to pick up on. Did you notice? Your word, your faithfulness, you have established, right? Your appointment, your servants, your law. What is David's confidence based on? At the first level. God I know that sounds simple you're like I came all the way here tonight to hear that (laughs) Obviously no no I, I don't think it's quite as simple in practice as it is in saying Right I think this is why the Bible is always Kind of teaching us how to speak like this. This is why the psalms so often are about this when someone's in trouble Instead of them rehearsing all the things they have done, or all the things that have been done to them, or all the things they have felt or are feeling, the faithful person will instead rehearse what God is, what He has done, and what He is doing. Do you see the difference? I think it's a huge difference. Oftentimes, human wisdom tells us when we're in trouble, turn to the ineffective medicines of human wisdom, philosophy, psychology, ingenuity. A.K.A. pull yourselves up by your own psychological bootstraps. You ever try to do that? The Bible says there's such a limit to that. It's not that that doesn't have a place. It's just the limit to that is so, well, it's, it's so limited. The limit is so limited that it will very quickly leave you exposed to more disappointment. If you're feeling a lack of confidence because things aren't going well, like David here, David, again, is still continuing to call out to God because, verse 95 Look at it. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. We've heard this. We know what's up with David. David is being attacked from the outside by other people. It's distressing him. He's calling on God for help consistently. He's wondering when God is going to show up. But notice, instead of sitting down thinking, all right, I've got to to catalog all of my feelings. I've got to catalog my life history. I've got to figure myself out. David says, you know what? Let me just for a minute talk about you. Forever God, you. And when he does that, David finds a medicine in that that far outweighs anything that human beings could come up with. As one writer says, Jehovah's word is not fickle or uncertain. That's what David's thinking. It's not not fickle, it's not uncertain. It's settled, it's determined, it's fixed, it's sure, it's immovable man's teachings change so often that there is never time for them to be settled. Have you ever noticed that? One week drinking coffee will send you to an early grave. The next week you read the headline and it will extend your life by a decade. Did you, have you ever noticed that? The theories of men. Shifting all the time, Uh, not that we shouldn't come up with those theories, not that that's not useful, it's just we ought to recognize the limit to it. You can't take it to the bank, it's not immovable the way that God's word is. And so David doesn't sit there and try to assure his heart by rehearsing his own skills or rehearsing his own deficiencies, neither one. Instead he goes to the Lord's word which remains the same from days of old. And he knows it will remain unchanged eternally forever, O Lord. Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That word in verse 89, firmly fixed, literally nailed in place. Your word is nailed in place in heaven. In heaven, above everything else, above all the stuff of this world, all the ideas of men, there's your word, fixed with nails. It is not moving. Not only your word, oh God, verse 90, but your very faithfulness. Your own character, God. Your your faithful character. This idea that, that God doesn't shift or change. That when God says something, he means it. When God starts to do something, he finishes it. That's faithfulness. David says your faithfulness endures generationally. Not just one, not just two, not just three, but all the generations of mankind. Not only that, but all around us every day, David says, we live in a, almost like a theater where the faithfulness and goodness of God is being played out before us in creation. He says, um, you have established the earth and it stands fast. To prove the fact that your word is certain. To prove the fact that you are certain. Look at the world. It stays the same. By your appointment. They stand this day. For all things serve you. God you say go. And the stars go. You say come and they come. You command the animals. You command the weather. I told you last week about how much fun. I was having this time reading through Job. Which is a. Not an often thing to say, you're having fun reading Job. I've talked to a few of y'all about that already, how that experience isn't being shared necessarily across the board. But for whatever reason, this year it's hitting me different. And one of the things that excited me this week as I read is Job's friend, um, I think it was Elihu, one of the friends that's counseling Job. He goes on this long tear about God being the Lord of the weather, And I just found that so interesting, especially throughout the week as we had thunderstorms every day. And I got, you know, kind of see them blow in and out. And he said something like this. He said, Lord, every cloud, whether it has rain or snow or just wind, whatever it is, every cloud you send either as a rod to correct people, as a mercy to bless them or just simply because you're caring for the earth and that fired up my imagination to think about it every even the smallest detail of the weather sent by the lord for who knows what we don't know exactly all the purposes that god has but it's just comforting to know he's got them he's intentional about the way he's appointing things Things, including clouds, including rain, including snow, and whatever else, all things, David says, are your servant. The world around us teaches us about the consistency of God. Not only that, but in my own life, David says, I've experienced it. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished a long time ago. David knew it by his own experience. I trusted God's word, and God didn't let me down. And so here I am in my time of need. Here I am when I'm not feeling naturally very confident. I'm able to gain my confidence by looking up, by considering who God is, what God does, and why he does it and how he does it. Isn't that cool? You know, sometimes I got to fly, really bother me. And the Lord sends everything, (laughs) I just said. So for some reason... The Lord is sending me this fly. I don't know if you're seeing it, but it's, it's, it's distracting me a little bit. Yeah. So if I lose my train of thought, you'll know why. The Lord did it. Think about that. You know, when you go to the doctor and something's wrong, sometimes they may say, you know what your problem is? You have a deficiency nutritionally. There, there are things, there are vi- maybe some vitamins, maybe some whether iron or whatever it is that you need to have that you don't get enough of, so I recommend you take these supplements or you eat these certain things. When I, when I read places like this in Scripture, it's almost like the Bible is telling me, God is telling me, Stan, you have a massive glory-of-God deficiency. When you go to di- diagnose your own problems or when you go to help other people diagnose them, you only want to talk about people stuff, men stuff. The ideas that we just noted are always changing, always moving, we, not even still long enough to be nailed down. Instead of returning back to the great vitamin of the unchanging glory of God. In other words, theology is good for your soul. It's not just good for your mind. It's not just about being right. Listen, it's not even really about being right. It's about knowing the one with whom you have to do. The one before whose face you live your whole life and before whose face you will live your next life in one condition or the other. And it's as if The Lord has been sending everything our way, ordering the whole creation just to simply grasp us by the collar and say, you need me, and I am offering to give myself to you to meet your need. David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. And I think that at least that has to mean he was a man who knew where to get his perspective. He knew what forever meant. Verse 89. He knew what forever meant. David, I'm sure, had a load of human wisdom and common sense and all kinds of other things. And those things aren't bad. But David David knew what forever meant. And he knew that he could not describe any of those things as forever. But he knew that he could describe the Lord and the Lord's word as that. Nailed down. In the heavens. Never changing. And he's using it here to supply the vitamin deficiency in his heart. So that he can have an assurance to face whatever it is God is calling him to face. Same thing will be true with us. Remember the story of uh, Jesus walking on the sea? Uh, I mean the one where he calls Peter to come out to him. The cool little detail there at the end, a lot is made of it. As pastors say, it'll preach. Where um, Peter's walking and then Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink. And, you know, and, and Jesus... Oh, you of little faith, grabs him and pulls him up. Do you think we're making too much of that detail? I Sometimes wonder if we are. Maybe it's not meant to teach that much. (laughs) Maybe it's just that, well, Peter was scared and like everybody else would be. But I'm gonna do it anyway. It is important to remember where forever is found. and to put your eyes there. Particularly when you find yourself in the middle of waves and wind and confusion and doubt down below. It'll only get you so far to try to figure it out on your own or to crowdsource it with popular opinion. That might help you a little bit, but it'll only help you a little bit. How about a forever bit? Listen to what God has to say. Trust him. Trust him. Keep your eyes on him. Walk through the storm, through the waves as Jesus led Simon Peter. And so my question, if you want to have real confidence, confidence that is not just simply based in temporary things, how often do you consider God like this? How much of my prayer life is I, I, I rather than you, you, you? How much of my conversation is about I, 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 or us, 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 rather than him, him, him? It makes a big difference, y'all. It makes a big difference. It's a small change that makes a very, very big difference. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. All right, let's look at the second thing which is the way that uh, David lives in light of his assurance. And in verses 93 to 96, another section beginning with the word forever, it's the same, it's the same word, la olam in Hebrew, starting with the L, the lamed. He begins now to talk more about the eyes. Okay, so the you came first, the I comes second. It's not that the eyes aren't important. So now I'm going to... Kind of be saying a little bit of the opposite of what I just said or it may seem like I'm saying the opposite but Really what I'm saying is once you have grounded yourself with the you the hymn Then you get clarity for working out the eyes what I should do and how I should do it uh, Notice what David says verse 93 forever. I will never forever. I will never Forever I will never forget your precepts for by them. You have given me life. I am yours Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen the limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, I want you to notice David doing two different things. And I, I'll try to, I'm going to state this maybe in a way that'll be memorable, hopefully. And it's also in line with our vacation Bible school theme this year and our sea theme what I see David doing here in verses 93 to 96 is on the one hand he's casting his anchor and on the other hand he's setting his sails okay so based on the fact that he had confidence in God you 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 forever 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 I'm looking up I'm thinking about God's ways I'm thinking about God's character what God has done based on that He's now able to move ahead in his life by A, casting his anchor in the right place wherever he goes, and B, setting his sails to head in the direction that God wants him to go. And I just want to point out a little bit in each of those. Let me actually ask you, to, because I think it'll be helpful to get you active in this. One, where do you see him casting his anchor? if that makes sense. What are some of the phrases that he uses to say, here I stand. This is where I'm going to throw out my line. I am, I am yours. Save me. Isn't that kind of what you're doing every time, Bob, when you throw out your anchor? Save me. <laughs> stop me from moving. Something down there, grab a hold and, and stop me. What else? Where is he casting his anchor? I will never forget your precepts. I will never forget your precepts. Good. Committing himself to remember, which is uh, actually, you've got to commit yourself to remember when it comes to God. Doesn't this happen automatically? What else? Well, let me ask it this way. Where is he not throwing his anchor? That might be an easier way for you to look at it. There are two places where he's clearly not going to go to lay down his anchor. Do you need me to help you? The wicked, yeah, that's right. He's not going there. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Not going there. Notice how he says, but I consider... The wicked do this but I consider I'm not gonna go that way I'm not gonna fight fire with fire I'm not gonna you know stoop down to that level where else is he not going to put his anchor I've seen, I've seen, a, limit. I've seen a limit yeah he, he, he's learned he can't put his anchor permanently at least in things that are limited Now, why do you think he says it that way? Verse 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Hold on. I thought the definition of perfection was perfect. No limit. What does he mean? What's he trying to express there? What's he talking about? Right. Yeah, it's almost, it is like he's using. Y'all remember the word hyperbole from school? You know, a hyperbole is a figure of speech that purposefully exaggerates in order to make a point. Some of y'all love to use hyperbole. I know I do too. I love hyperbole. And and by the way, Jesus did as well. He, he uses a lot of hyperbole. Jesus does. If you've never noticed that about Jesus, you should go. Like, for example, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Right? Hyperbole. Same thing here. I've seen a limit even to perfection. Perfection is overrated when you compare it with God's, God and his word, God and his commandment. God and his word is exceedingly broad, broader than perfection itself, higher, wider, deeper, I'm not going to cast my anchor, but basically what he's saying is, I'm not going to cast my anchor anywhere else except God. Even if someone were to come up to me and say, hey, I've got, I've got a proposition, David, cast your anchor here. It's perfect. David's going to say, nope, not casting my anchor there because it's not God. And God even makes perfection look puny. You see what he's getting at? He is taking a radical stand here. He says, no matter where I go, because I'm confident in the Lord, not in myself, not in created things, not in temporary fixes, my confidence is in the forever God. That is where everywhere I go, I'm going to throw my anchor down in every situation. Now, here's the cool thing about the anchor of God. We'll talk about the anchor more in a minute. The anchor of God moves with you as you go. I'll prove that to you in a minute. So the second thing he does is he sets his sails, and you might think, well, those things are opposite. How do you throw your anchor out and set your sails? Well, you don't know what kind of anchor I'm talking about. Because at the same time that he's saying my life is grounded in God, he's also saying I'm headed in a certain direction, and I am absolutely sure about where I'm headed. Don't you want to feel that way? Wow. I know I do. Don't you want to feel grounded? And don't you also want to be sure about where your life is headed? But isn't that so rare? Both of those things. It's either like people don't have it at all or people have it but they ought not to have it. Because the direction they're headed is not one in which they ought to be confident. Right? Their anchor point isn't very strong. And so... Isn't it amazing that there is such a thing as a well-grounded anchor, as well as a well-grounded confidence in the direction that one's life is headed in? David's showing us that there is. He says, I'm not going to ever forget your precepts. Not ever, forever. As, as your, your word itself is forever, and my commitment to it, oh, Lord help me, my commitment to it is Forever. Here I stake my claim. I'm going to seek your precepts, verse 94. My direction is sure. I'm going to seek it. I have sought it and will seek it. Verse 95, I will consider it. I'll consider it even as my enemies plot against me. I'll plot about you. I'll meditate. That word consider is I will seriously meditate. I'll think about your testimonies even as they think about how to destroy me. I've seen a limit to perfection, but your commandment is broad. That, therefore, remember when David talks about broad, he's talked about this several times. Uh, Lord, set my heart free, and I will run in the direction of your commandments. Lord, your way is exceedingly open. He uses these kinds of words. And what he means is, there is freedom to be found in obedience to God. And so David went, As much of his life as he aims at listening to God's will and applying it to himself and seeking to live in light of it, he is sure that that's never going to lead him astray. He's going to have plenty of room to sail. He's not going to run into the rocks. He's not going to run into the iceberg. It's going to be clear sailing because he's sure that God is not going to let him down. a man anchored and sailing full speed at the same time. Now, how is that possible? Uh, Well, keep your finger in Psalm 119. Let's talk a little bit more about this anchor thing. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I want to show you something. Chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. As soon as you get there, I want somebody to read out what the title is if you have an ESV. Certainty of God's promise. Yeah, so you kind of already right there, you see the similarity between what David's saying in our section in Psalm 119 and what's being said here. The certainty of God's promise. Your word is fixed in the heavens. Now listen. To what the writer says. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And steadfast, what does it say? Anchor for the soul. Okay, what is this? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What's this? Hope based on what? God's prompt God does not lie in fact it says here we have it by a double proof number one a God is incapable of lying because he's perfect that's the first proof God can't lie because he's not a liar second proof he didn't have to do this but he did it for us he took an oath double proofed right that God's not lying in his word first of all he can't lie second of all Even though he can't, just to accommodate our slowness to believe, he took an oath to guarantee he's not. So that everything in his word is sealed with an oath, the blood of Jesus. That is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, now I'll keep reading. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Okay, now it's getting weird. What, what is this? Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, I can't untie all the knots. But what curtain is it talking about where the anchor goes into behind it? Where has Jesus gone? Holy of holies, which is? Presence of God, which is where right now? Heaven, right? yeah, it's I understand why you hesitated. It's everywhere, but the, this presence, the special presence of God is there. And what Jesus did, think about this, what he did by guaranteeing all of God's word, remember the Bible says every promise of God is yes because of Jesus and amen, an oath because of Jesus. What he's done is he's taken a rope tied it to our lives on one end and to a big strong anchor on the other. And he's carried that anchor all the way with himself into the throne room of God and (laughs) has attached it to the throne of God. Wow. Now, you might think I'm crazy, but David knew that which is why he talked the way he talked. He knew that was what his hope was. That's why he says, forever, Lord, in the heavens, it's nailed down. Your word is nailed. You cannot lie. You will not lie. You've never lied to me. The whole world proves you don't lie because it all stays the way you originally designed it. Day after day, night after night, the stars move in the same patterns. The sun moves in the same patterns. The rains come. The drought comes. The floods come. The hurricanes come. The earthquakes come. The everything comes because everything is your servant. And can I, can I doubt for a moment that my circumstances in my life is not also your servant? To go where you send it? To become of it what you wish it to become? Oh, because your word is nailed to heaven, my hope is nailed to heaven. I will forever not forget your precepts. My anchor is anchored To the very throne of God himself David knew it and this in Hebrews is telling us every Christian has the same hope the same anchor as David now I said it's a movable anchor and I don't mean the anchor itself moves I mean think about this where is the anchor I just told you heaven right (laughs) the throne Where are we headed? Heaven. Right? An anchor normally holds you back. But in this case, we have an anchor, a curious case of an anchor that pulls you forward. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is an anchor that gives you confidence, but it's not a confidence that makes you stand still and, you know, you have no direction, you're just immobile, which is the way normally anchors are designed to work, to make the boat immobile. Here, because the anchor is set in heaven, it's almost as if we're being pulled by the anchor upward. So that David at the same time could say, I am settled in God and I know where my anchor point should be, but I'm also moving all the time in God's direction. I'm, I'm headed in the right direction and I know it. And so I'm able to pursue my life for God with gusto, with joy, with confidence, with boldness, because I'm headed to that place where Jesus threw my anchor down. Never to be moved he's nailed it there and it's it's not the anchor that's going to move it's me that's moving towards it so that wherever I'm at now you can go back to Psalm 119 look at what David's saying wherever I'm at whatever's going on in my life I know where I'm headed is that not what he's saying I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I'm yours, save me, for I've sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I will consider. My anchor is set, and I'm moving in the direction to, in which I'm anchored. I've seen a limit to all perfection, and so I don't get distracted by these other temptations. Instead, your commandment is broad. I'm drawn by, by almost an irresistible desire to go in the direction that you have set out for me. David has laid his anchor and David is setting his sails at the same time because his confidence is not in mere man, including himself. His confidence is in the Lord. And so my my exhortation, the thing that I walked away thinking this week is, I need to spend more time considering the wonder of who God is, the consistency of who God is, the faithfulness of God. Sometimes that might seem like a waste of time. I get it. We, we live in a very pragmatic culture and if the things we do don't immediately produce results, we think, ah, I don't have time for it. And I get that this doesn't necessarily immediately produce results. But thinking about God, seriously, considering the Lord in your daily life, it might not produce immediate results, but it will produce very long-term results, like forever results, including in your life right now. Let me leave you with this. This is uh, from Charles Spurgeon. Welcome back, kids. Charles Spurgeon, who's, who's not commenting on this psalm, but, but he says something very relevant to it. He says this, the proper study of a Christian is God, In other words, the thing that a Christian ought to be most most excited about studying is God himself. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. Now listen to this. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quiet for every grief. In the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? I know we would want to. Then go plunge yourself in God's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest. Refreshed. And invigorated when the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart that's what it means in part is that he knew how to do that set his anchor set his sails go to God not getting all mixed up in this whatever I mean we call it different things in different generations you call it sometimes philosophy sometimes just common sense and do-it-yourself self-help and all that kind of stuff it's got its place but it's so limited Think about God. Put your hope there.